This is Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. Uh, we are honored to have Dan Shaughnessy, longtime Boston Globe writer, uh, who just uh, put a book out called Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. Dan, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Nice to be here, Ira. So people are comparing this book to like the the in, the inside story of the Celtics, the Larry Bird years, almost like the last dance with the uh, Michael Jordan years. Well, that's good. I was somewhat inspired by the last dance. I mean, when there was no games, you know, a couple of springs ago, and and we were setting our watches by Sunday night for ESPN to see the last dance. I, you know, I kept being reminded of my years on the beat. You've know, seen my thirty uh, year old self with the big hair and glasses sitting at courtside in the days before they sold those seats for so many thousands of dollars, the lowly media would sit right there next to the bench. And, and here in Boston, they were showing uh, the Celtics classics of the 80s in, in lieu of games. And same deal. I, I covered that team for four seasons, and Bird was MVP three of those years. And it was really kind of a coming-of-age time for the NBA. And uh, that's sort of what, what triggered, well, let's let's sit down and put these stories in, in place one, one time here. And, and – I understand that this is old material that everybody knows who won the games and who's in the Hall of Fame and what the numbers are, but it really is is, is about a special time and a special team and, and, and an era when the media, the, the print media especially, was able to tell you what the players were like because we were just around them so much. Flying commercial aircraft, waiting for bags, being in hotels, staying at Holiday Inns, going to practice on the bus, you know, all the stuff that doesn't happen today because there's a big moat it separates uh, all media from them. But uh, at this time, when the league was still kind of small time, it really was the ability to get out there and be with them and, and tell the fans what, what their uh, heroes were like. Yeah, and you have so many great stories. I mean, I was taking notes as I was writing, and I'm like, I just filled all my of your stories. And, like, the one of them is when Kevin McHale, like, one time said to you, hey, Dan, let's just go watch Bruce Springsteen, and let's go do the concert. And you just jumped with him and go. I mean, you could imagine going with any current Celtic, if you were covering the Celtics, like they would invite you to go to a concert. It'd be it's just impossible to even think that would happen. Yeah, we were with these guys all the time, and, and there was a little bit of a connection there. But for some reason, in the, the Born in the USA tour, you know, 84, 85, when Springsteen was on the cover of all the magazines, and they really exploded, uh, there was a guitar player, still is, Nils Lofgren, and McKay was friends with him. He was a small guy from Maryland, and great guitar player, and and uh, in Houston and Dallas and Atlanta, they were playing shows the same time as the Celtics were playing those teams. And so after seeing a couple of shows, I know we were in Atlanta, and after the, um, after the Celtic game, you know, they were setting up for the, for the boss the next night in the Omni. And Mikhail in the locker room said, I'm, I'm going over to see some of the guys, you know, you want to come. And so I know trainer Ray Melchiori came with us, and we ended up sitting, you know, at the atrium in Atlanta at the, the Hyatt. And, uh, you know, sitting around with Nils Lofgren and, and the young singer, Patty, who became Bruce's wife, was sitting there. And, and you know, Bruce stopped by and he's just come from the movies with Roy Bitten. And, but yeah, it was, it was kind of, I don't know, it, it was a big deal, um, but and it just, just wasn't that unusual uh, kind of thing. And, and I remember in the ride, in the cab ride, going home with Mikhail, I was like, that's pretty intimidating for me. Uh, that's hard. You know, and he said he, he never got that right way around famous people anymore. And I'm like, oh. That's because you are one now. I understand that. I mean, yeah, you had so many stories where, like, when you tra- – the team, I mean, flying commercial is just 
to think that you, I could walk through LAX and just see Larry Bird sleeping on some chairs would be just, I mean, it just would never happen. I mean, you would not see any NBA star in season, out of season, sitting at LAX or any airport down here in Miami or whatever, sleeping on a chair, waiting for a connection, you know, being tired. Um, and you had some good stories about Bird. I mean, the fact that he, he even hustled you. I love that story about how one time he had his hand was bandaged and he said, I still shoot free throws. And I think he took $160 from you. He got me for buck sixty. Uh, it was a hundred free throws, five dollars a throw, and they had taped his 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 handicap was they they balled his hand up into a fist with with uh, tape, and so he was shot putting them from the line, and he soon figured out how to make it work. I think he had done this before. I was challenging his ability to play with tape on his hand in the game, but this was a real mummy job that they had on his fist, and yeah, he was able to adjust and figure it out, and he's putting them all through, and I was choking at the line, seeing five dollar bills leaving my hand every time I let one go. But And I loved how you really provided insight into Larry Bird. I mean, he's not like some of the other superstars we had. I mean, here's someone who goes to Indiana, was there, what, 20-some days? And then I love the story you said about Quinn Buckner said. He goes, when he came back, he asked his brother where he was. He goes, I thought I saw him hitchhiking on the road with his clothes. And uh, But it was like, and then he spent a whole uh, time of just like doing odd jobs around and doing maintenance at parks. Uh, just not what we expect of someone who's an 18-year-old superstar high school basketball player now. Yeah, and he, you know, he he was uh, teaching special needs children and teaching driver's ed when he was a senior at Indiana State. So there's actually people, you know, driving around Indiana today in their 50s and 60s who their their driver instructor is Larry <laughs> Bird. <laughs> Wish I could have found one of them for the book. But um, and I think that was, and then you went into. This is the red red hour back with the Celtics and, and near the end of his his whole career, but it was like his last, you know, put together in terms of drafting and, and how he constructed the team. And the idea to draft Larry Bird a year early, which we can't do now, you're not allowed to do that, but that it was very intriguing in terms of him how he went about getting Bird drafted a year early. It was a little bit of a loophole that, you know, because of the, what you referenced with Larry going to Indiana and then not staying and then going home and taking a year off, a gap year they'd call that now. But he ends up having a five-year career because uh, one year at IU, it didn't count, and then four years playing at Indiana State. So in his third year of Indiana State, he's draft eligible because his freshman class is now coming up for the draft. And uh, he was still a junior, and they knew that. And uh, other teams knew it when it it came clear that they were thinking of, of selecting him. And he was pre-interviewed by, like, I think Portland and, and the Warriors and teams that had – because Red had the sixth pick. And um, if you were willing to take a chance, you, you had to sign him in a year. First of all, you wouldn't have the player for a year. And second of all, if you didn't sign him by the next draft, he went back into the draft. So it gave the player amazing freedom, high risk for the team that, that picked him. And five teams failed to do it because they were not sure they could secure his services. He wouldn't give anybody a guarantee. And that included the Celtics. So Red took him at six figure, and we'll we'll talk him into coming here. And it went down to the wire. I mean, the next draft was coming up, and he was still you know eligible to go into it. And Boston would would lose a number number six pick in the whole draft. And uh, but they did come to terms. And you know Red guys think kind of felt that the allure of you know the banners and the parquet and the championships. And but he had to pony up, and Red didn't like that. But that's what got him here. <laughs> and then you talk about it, and this this trade. 
the trade of Joe Barry Carroll for Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish. I mean, it's just, it might be the most lopsided trade in the history of sports. I mean, we spoke about the Herschel Walker trade in football, but this could possibly be that. I mean, how did that trade go down where they were able to get two future Hall wow. of Famers for Joe Barry Carroll? That trade makes your head explode because it involves Miss America. It involves Dick Vitale. I mean, it, it is Bob McAdoo. So, you know, the only, the governor of Kentucky was John Y. Brown. He was dating Phyllis George, Miss America. She liked Bob McAdoo. They went to a Knicks game, and he owned the Celtics. And so he said, well, I'll get him to the Celtics. So he gave up a bunch of stuff to get McAdoo, who ended up only playing like 20 games in Boston. John Y. Brown marries Phyllis George, sells the team, goes and becomes governor of Kentucky. She becomes CBS, you know, NFL Sunday, Miss America, and all that. Well, meanwhile, you know, Red's got Bob McAdoo for 20 games and then gives him up to Detroit, but Dick Vitale gave him the number one pick. And the Pistons, you know, Frank then went out and won like nine games the next year, and that pick ended up being Joe Barry Carroll. So Red had that pick in his pocket, and uh, Golden State wanted Carroll. Red had the third pick in the country. Excuse me, Golden State had the third pick in the country. So Red said, well, I'll give you the number one pick, and you can get the guy you want, but you got to give me your backup center, Robert Parrish. So he gets Parrish and the number three pick, which ends up being McHale, for Joe Barry Carroll, when he would have taken McHale one anyway if he'd kept the pick. <laughs> so Parrish ends up being like a throw-in, and uh, the rest is history, of course, the greatest front court of all time. And then, you know, it's interesting, though. It's almost like when, when Larry Bird, people feel that, they felt that Bird and Magic started playing like like there was like eight years where they played against each other in lore when people look at memory. But really, it was the first four years the Celtics never met the Lakers in the finals. It was they had uh, they uh, they he won his title when they beat the uh, uh, Rockets in the final in the second year. So and they asked, and they have lost the Sixers twice. So it was sort of like that right. first four years when Larry only had that one title. But it wasn't. It was that that one title early on with Bill Fitch as their coach. It wasn't the. It didn't start uh, Larry right. Magic immediately. Yeah, they came to the league the same year in '79. Obviously, after the Indiana State, Michigan State, NCAA final, still the most watched college game of all time. Always will be. And uh, you know, Magic Larry was rookie of the year, and Magic won the NBA championship scoring like 42 is playing center for the Lakers in the game. Kareem was, was hurt. So, um, and then Larry won it the next year, but they played the Rockets and then magic got to the finals two more times. So they had both, they had both been in the finals. One or the other was in the finals the first four years of their career, never against each other. And then you start the sequence and that's where the book, the book picks up because three of out of four years, they face each other in the finals. It was the alley Frazier of the NBA. It really brought the league into prominence because of the prominent players on both teams, you know, Worthy, Jabbar, Magic, Bird, Parrish, McHale, Dennis Johnson, etc. And uh, those matches end up being what's memorable. And of course, ESPN did a great, a great series on that. And another one coming up on HBO is Showtime now. And that's just a, that to me really put the NBA on the map. And of course, I, I believe, you know, then Jordan takes it to the next level and you get the dream team and it becomes a global international entity that it is today. And you talked about that reboot though, and how, Auerbach said, okay, I got Mikhail Parrish, and I have Larry Bird, but I have to bring in Dennis Johnson. So he's able to bring Dennis Johnson in, who is another Hall of Famer. And then he made a change in coaches to Casey Jones. And your book had some interesting stories about how Casey Jones and Bill Fitch actually got into fistfights. I mean, rarely do you hear head coaches and assistant coaches actually fighting. And that elevation of Casey Jones, and that sort of just set uh, the, uh, the Celtics on the right path in terms of making that change of coaching and going and setting it forward for that. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, I mean, everybody kind of learned the NBA shelf life with few exceptions. You know, you've seen it with obviously with pop and, and some, a few select guys, but it's three years. It's after that, it gets tired for a lot of people. And so, uh, Larry saw that with Fitch right away. Fitch is a hall of famer and, uh, he had had nine years in Cleveland and he, he made Robert Parrish a hall of famer and that team responded to him when they were all young. But then by the fourth year, that's when I came on board. It was, it was over. They were tuning him out and a change needed to be made. It was made. And Casey Jones ended up being the magic potion for that team, which is kind of roll the ball out and have faith that they would know what to do. And it worked nicely. That worked. And he had another Hall of Fame coach with, uh, you know, getting into the finals four straight years. Yeah, I mean, there's so many stories. And, and that when you follow the team, I, I mean, even the one story about the famous Bird-Julius Irving fight. And if you don't remember who Julius Irving was, he was Jordan before Jordan to some extent. And... Uh, uh, but they, you mentioned that there was only one official refing the game because the other official got hurt. They only had two officials. Could you imagine NBA game today having only one official between an NBA game? It'd be well, crazy. And there was so much going on in those games too. You had Moses Malone and Ivoroni and McHale, and they, they were killing each other down there. So yeah, guys were getting away with a lot. And and the guy was Dick Pavetta, who you know was he was the Barney Fife of, of the NBA. You know, <laughs> skinny little guy, run the floor, nice nice man, but he was not a forceful guy. And then you talk in your book about uh, the fight. There was this whole infamous fight when, when Larry Bird in the 85, 45 season hurt his hand. And there's a rumor that he heard it a fight at a bar, but he would always deny it. Like he would talk about every personal thing about his personal life, all his trials and tribulations, but would never talk about the fight. And then you reported on it. And then he had a fight with you about it. So it was, it was interesting, that whole sequence about working with, about talking about the fight with Larry. Yeah. The dynamic of reporter and athlete is always tricky. I never became real friends with anybody. And, they didn't want that, and I understood it. And, you know, that's why Larry, they called me Scoop, and Larry would say, Scoop, do you notice know how quiet it gets when you walk in the locker room? And I understood that. So they, they had raised eyebrows, and they saw me coming. And the, the bird fight, you know, I wasn't going to write about how many beers somebody had the night before the game. That's not our territory. But when it starts affecting what's on the floor, and I thought that the fight did because he shot poorly. They lost the championship. It was a chance for a title that they didn't get. And uh, his hand was messed up. And uh, there was an out-of-court settlement. It happened. He was embarrassed by it. He never spoke to me about it. Uh, this one reporter, a lovely woman who's passed on, Mary Shane, he did apologize to her and said he's embarrassed his mother and he had to be more careful who he was hanging out with and all this stuff. But it happened all right, and it, 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 it needed to be written. And that's unfortunate. And of course, it strained things with us for a good long time, and I understood that, you know, but uh, it still had to be done. And then your final year with the team was the team that some people believe, and, and I think you sort of hinted in the book, is the best team of all time. They were 67-15. and 15. They didn't know what record was supposed to be a record, or you said they could have won every game they played, um, and, uh, and, and they were, that's how good they were. That's when they added Bill Walton. And you showed in the book that Bill Walton was like the perfect addition to this team. And with McHale, it's like the timing of where he was. He was still healthy enough to contribute. Larry Bird was, had all his powers. McHale and Parrish were in their primes. And then you add someone like Walton with the good backcourt they had and the depth. It was like the perfect team. Yeah, I've got a video clip on my phone. Next time we see you, well, I'll, I'll pull out my phone and show you this. It's like a minute and a half of just the, the passing of that team. It's the greatest passing team of all time. Ainge would lobby to get in the games back in garbage time just to be on the other end of Walton's passes because he'd be on the floor at the end to give Parrish a spell. And, and it's just magical ball to watch. And, you know, I'm trying not to promote this book as it was so much better then. <laughs> so I'm trying to be careful. But you know what? It was better then. It was. And it was more fun to watch. And it, 
it wasn't a three-point contest and just launching from out there. There was a beautiful, you know, pick and roll and give and go and the picket fence and all the stuff that, that was magical about basketball. And, and I do wish it lasted forever, and I do wish I had watched more closely back then to the great ball I was seeing. Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, you end the book, it was almost a soprano stipendi because then you, in, at the end of the season, or actually near the end, you know, started covering the Red Sox. So you, you went off the Celtic beat and made the choice to go, because as big as the Celtics are in Boston, you said the Red Sox are twice as big, and you and you sort of ended there. And, and But it's almost like, you know, the Lake, the Celtics made the finals the next year, but then uh, Larry's last years, I mean, he never, that was his last title. He owned people he only won three titles only, but that's still, right. it's, it's, it's his career was a little shortened in terms of the last six years he played. He only made one finals on any of those six years. Exactly. It's, it's, it's seriously how hard it is to do it. He was MVP three straight years. And I think Wilton Russell, the only other two to do that. And uh, it, you know, getting in the finals four straight years, being in five, you know, winning three, that that's a lot. And but it's still it's not like Russell went in eleven and thirteen years and that sort of thing and and it, it did it, it it came apart pretty quickly after I left so I, I saw the absolute height of it I saw him you know win win those two championships beat the Lakers in the finals the only time they did it with Larry and Magic and uh, and again wrapping up with the greatest team of all time the team that went fifty one at home had five Hall of Famers and and a, a team of roster that does translate into today's game as, as Rick Carlisle, who's still active in today's game. He was on that team. He'll tell you that. Mikhail will tell you that. And I, I do believe that the, the skill sets of those players, that team do translate. And you mentioned, I mean, you hinted in the book that Len Bias, another person, maybe some of our listeners might not remember, but he was a great, great college player. And he died only a few weeks after the draft. He was uh, drafted by the, out of Maryland. Um, and some people compared him to, to Jordan. Uh, the point is that if he could have come to the Celtics and been that superstar Celtic player, that might have been a way to help, you know, where Larry could have been the, comp- you know, as he got older, been the complimentary player to Len Bias leading the team. Yeah, Bias comes on board. It, it, it gives that front court a lot more rest than the upcoming years because Mikhail had to play in a broken foot in the finals in 87. And, and it, it just it, it broke apart pretty quickly. They were never... They never won another championship, and uh, you know they would get to the finals and then come up short. But I, bias, I'd, I'd never put him as Jordan, but he he was a six eight guy, and he could run the floor and he could he could shoot it. It was uh, he was the best player in the country, and because Red had the foresight to make a draft in the early days of the lottery, and Seattle went south after the draft after the dra- trade was made, they ended up with the greatest team of all time, and then getting the best pick in the country the same year. So Red would often put himself in those enviable positions because he was just smart than everybody else. <laughs> well, and what is the reception? We're talking to Dan Shaughnessy uh, of his who wrote uh, "Wish It Was Lasted Forever: Life with Larry Bird." Celtics is available at all the bookstores. You should probably. It is really a great basketball book to read. Um, and just as much as you might say, "Oh, I know about the Celtics," there's every there, there's like 250 pages, and there's stuff I learned in here and small little stories. But what's the reception of the book from the Celtics, from the players? How have they received it? Uh, you know, I'm hearing pretty good things. You know, Cedric Maxwell, he gave us a book blurb for it. And Larry's agent said that they got it there. I doubt, I doubt I'll hear from him, but, you know, all everything in there is true, and he knows it, and we had a lot of fun. And, and uh, you know, Danny Ainge has a copy. Brad Stevens sent me a nice note on it. And we've been on the bestseller list up in Boston for three weeks, and I'm hoping we don't run out of books because it's, it's, it's i got to say, the things people love this book, and I'm happy uh, we're able to get it out there, and it's been wonderfully received. and. Folks like yourself who really understand the game, it really helps to talk to you about it. Thank you. 
Well, we love basketball here down in, in uh, South Florida, certainly with the heat, and uh, there's a lot of fans. So this is definitely a book that everybody should get uh, in terms of if you have any interest in the NBA. So, Dan, I know you're really busy, and I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports and, uh, and talking about Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. Thanks so much, Ira. Enjoy talking to you.